Did you know that there are five key biohacks to start to do right now to reduce your body's inflammation, to slow cellular aging, and of course, reduce oxidative stress status. I even just recently wrote a paper on this. Check out my recent research articles over at theschoolofradiance.com. Head on over to the research tab. And while you're there, be sure to book your one-on-one -on -one session with me, if you haven't yet already, for even more customized skin and rejuvenation guidance, as well as some biohacking and detox protocols that I personally do myself. Don't forget to check out my free 30-minute masterclass over at theschoolofradiance.com. Check out the freebie section, enjoy that video, and also enjoy today's episode on the School of Radiance podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition here on the Rachel Varga podcast. We have an extremely exciting guest who's actually a spy. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm bringing Andrew Bustamante here on the show. He's known as Everyday Spy. But I really want to talk about how everyday spy tactics can help us become more conscious consumers. Also even give us some insider insight as to how we can become more self-reliant on in and in our lives with ourselves, with our body, mind, spirit, and energy, because that's actually a key component to being a successful operative is to knowing how to deal with injuries and stressors as they arise. We can't always ask for help. So let me tell you about, oh, but we're also getting, going to even talk about facial prosthetics and how that's used in the uh, tradecraft world. And trade the, the word tradecraft is basically the term that's used to describe what spies use in the field to carry out operations. All right, so Andrew is a former covert CIA intelligence officer, decorated U.S. Air Force combat veteran, and respected Fortune 100 senior advisor. He is the founder of the Everyday Spy Training Platform, which is super fun. You guys should check out his uh, free spy simulation there. Hosts the Everyday Espionage Podcast, which I've probably listened to almost every episode. You guys got to check out his Everyday Espionage Podcast. It is golden. And he travels the world with his wife, Jihee, also former CIA, and two young kids. This is going to be a pretty exciting interview here with Andrew Bustamante, the Everyday Spy. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I sound so much more interesting when you introduce me than when I introduce myself. Yeah, you're pretty interesting, guys. <laughs> you're not fooling anybody. You know yes. you're interesting. You've, you know, you've created a whole podcast and business on, you know, helping the everyday consumer like myself and everybody tuning in on how to be, you know, smarter humans and navigate the world and become less susceptible to psyops, media, consumer manipulations. So before we get into today's episode, I'd love for you, if you haven't already, to be sure to subscribe on the Rachel Varga official Facebook page, YouTube channel, and on the podcast and hit the bell so that you know when I go live next, you can hang out with me also at Rachel Varga official on Instagram and rachelvarga.ca. Okay, so let's get into some spy tactics. So let's just dive right into it. And let's talk about facial prosthetics in the spy world, in the tradecraft world, and how are facial prosthetics used in the spy world and tradecraft? Man, that's that's a huge question, Rachel. And, and I would say the first thing to kind of keep in mind about disguise in general is that there's different levels of disguise. It's not 
what you see in the movies, what you saw in like Mission Impossible and uh, and all sorts of like Hollywood stuff, the full facial prosthetics, those have a very, very limited field utility because you can tell when people are wearing prosthetics. And if you can't tell when someone's wearing a prosthetic in one environment, as soon as you change that environment, once you adjust the humidity, once you adjust the temperature, once you adjust the person's body temperature, everything about the prosthetic is the first thing affected because it's not natural. So uh, I want to just start right away by saying a lot of the big stuff that you see in Hollywood isn't what we use and it, it isn't the most effective. The most effective disguise is often much simpler than that. It takes into effect, it takes into account the body's natural processes, what your skin already does, what, what the human eye is already drawn to in a human face. Those are the kind of practical, uh, tangible operational elements that we use in disguise tradecraft. All right. So let's just get into this hair, makeup, clothing. I, if you don't know this about me, all of you guys tuning in, is that actually espionage is my favorite genre to read. In particular, <laughs> like Russian espionage. I don't know what it is, but a couple of years ago, I was given a couple of books and went down the rabbit hole and, you know, tradecraft. I just find that so fascinating, just watching people on the street and, and all of that. So why don't you just walk us through like exactly what tradecraft is? is and we're talking about like switching your jacket turning it inside out and and changing your despite your disguise on the go what is that yeah like? so so tradecraft is uh it's kind of a straightforward term right trade craft if, in the english language at least it's all the trade all the tools the techniques that are required that's your trade right to carry out the trade of espionage all the tools tactics skills which become your craft so the craft of your trade, the tools and the skills and the techniques that are required for you to do your job, that is trade craft. Now, one thing that not everybody understands, Rachel, is trade craft is different based on whatever the espionage skill is that you're trying to carry out. So if you're trying to execute electronic penetrations or cyber warfare or some kind of digital combat, the trade craft is very different for that than what you would use if you're trying to execute a human intelligence operation where you meet someone on the street and exchange a note on water-soluble paper that can be thrown into a trash can and melt right away. So it's two different sets of tradecraft, even though it's all called tradecraft. So for us and for what we're starting with, the tradecraft that goes into disguise is, a, is just one more kind of vertical, what to use a business term, one vertical or one subsegment of tradecraft overall. Uh, and it is it is a tradecraft discipline that is exceptionally important and understood by very few, which is why those, those few people, the people in theater, the people in pro professional cosmetics, uh, the folks who are esthetic, uh, estheticians, these are the, the primary recruiting pool for the disguise specialists that make up CIA, Mossad, FSB, MSS. That's where they pull their talent from. And I actually know what FSB is. That's like the new SVR. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, the I new, read a lot of spy intelligence. Books. Exactly. Yep. You probably weren't expecting me to know that. Uh, Anyways, you knowing what you know about espionage, I thought you would know that. So. All right. So let's just talk about changing our appearance. Uh, I had my hairstyle changed. I went to the salon and they straightened my hair. I don't usually have like six straight hair. And uh, I went out for dinner once with my husband and these two ladies at the table next to us, 
was like, oh my gosh, your hair is so gorgeous. And my husband's like, yeah, it's super different today. It's like being with another woman. Anyways, <laughs> so, you know, we can have fun with this, changing our appearances in our everyday lives to have a little bit more fun, create that like spark and interest with our, with our partners and all of that. What about facial aesthetics that are uh, basically used inside the mouth to change the mm. cheeks and also, you know, maybe even in the lower jaw, does that stuff exist? Yeah, that stuff does exist. Um, so just as a quick background, there's, I mentioned before, there's different levels of disguise. So there's level one, two, and three level one is essentially like a fast disguise, something that you just kind of add, take away, whatever it might be. It's quick. Level two disguise is a long-term disguise. If you're going into a deep cover operation, you're going to be in a different persona for six months, two years, even 12 weeks. You'll go into level two disguise. And then level three disguise is similar to level one. It's short term, but it's the one that uses the most advanced prosthetics. So uh, designed for short-term use, but also uh, very, very technical in terms of the prosthetics that you're using. So for the, the kinds of stuff that goes into your mouth, that changes your jawline or that changes what your teeth look like, you'll find that in level one and in level three disguise. Professional stuff like actual Im uh, implants or, or uh, like fastens, fasteners that you can plug into almost like a retainer that forces your jaw or forces your, uh, your gum line to puff will take away the sharpness in your cheeks it can actually make your jaw look, I have a jaw that's already kind of strong, but if you have a rounded jaw, it can make your jaw look strong. It can also make you look like you have some kind of age factor, uh, swollen lips, or if you wanna highlight something, something that makes you look different than your normal appearance. So they've got professional prosthetics that can last for hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours. But even in level one disguise, if you want to just, if you even put cotton swabs inside or cotton balls inside your mouth, They'll, they'll become dense with saliva very quickly, but they will change the shape of your upper lip and your lower lip. Almost like when you see somebody dipping tobacco, it changes, it makes that bulge. So you can change your appearance in your face, you know, uh, in just a few seconds, if you have the right materials in your house to just pop it in and make yourself look different. I'm going to start doing some really funny things on the show here with my parents. <laughs> so you, you brought up the elephant in the room that everybody's going to be asking you about. What about facial fillers or Botox or eyelid surgery or rhinoplasty surgery? I could see this as being quite the advantageous tool for deep cover. Is that stuff being used? So there's uh, when it comes to the in, an intelligence officer's body, in the United States, at least, the intelligence officer's body is still their own body, right? The government can't force you to take Botox. Uh, that's not the case in all parts of the world. A Chinese intelligence officer doesn't have the right over their body. Um, many parts of Africa, many parts of Europe, once you sign up, you're committed. It's the same way with Russia. It's one of the reasons why you don't see as many Raven and Sparrow sex, sex espionage operations come out of the U.S. because the officers are in charge of their own body. Even if sex is the fastest way to get to somebody, the officer has to you know, be professional and choose what's the most advantageous route to collect intelligence. In Russia, they'll just tell you, male or female, that you have to use sex as the, the main tool of approach. So all the Botox stuff is all very valid, your rhinoplasty, permanent changes through plastic surgery of your, of your body or your face, all of that is on the table if you choose to have it on the table, but you ultimately have the decision. 
So basically, anyone who's wanting free Botox filler, rhinoplasty, you know, just sign yourself up to be a CIA operative. Am I right? Yeah, I would be careful with that because the way CIA <laughs> wants you to look may not be the way you want to look. <laughs> I'm aware. I'm just poking fun. I just I'm think that's that. fascinating. And when I'm on social media, I'm seeing a lot of Oriental models, you know, putting on these things like they're like tape on their face to totally mm. contort their nose to make their nose look more streamlined, their jaw to slim their jaw out. Like it's crazy. It looks like these little pieces of tape, which are just full on prosthetics. So it's funny when certain things uh, enter the mainstream media, there can sometimes have been a degree of use in mm. tradecraft, believe it or not. And we just went there, which is super fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a natural, it's, I mean, if you think about it, it's a very natural route for business. And in many ways, I think this gets to the heart of what we were talking about when we discussed how consumers can use their understanding of tradecraft to protect themselves. So when you understand the life cycle of a product, that helps you understand how that product came to market. So many of the conventional tools that we use every day, from pencils to, uh, to ink pens, even toaster ovens, the things that we use to line our, our homes or our automobiles against noise and against heat, a lot of those things were developed by the government first. They were developed for operations in space. They were developed for combat use. They were developed to make the soldier lighter on their feet, but still warm in the, co in the cold weather, right? So a lot of the things that you and I take for granted every day, a pencil that can write upside down, had a use somewhere before it was useful for the everyday person. By the time it gets to us, it's, it's kind of lived its utility or it has been, uh, it has been overcome or op made obsolete by some new technology. Uh, but that's what it that's essentially what happens when it gets to us. So a lot of your best prosthetics were created by a private third party innovator for government use. And then when the government created something better or when they found a better product, then that third party producer had to find a new outlet so that they could continue producing the same thing. And that's how you end up finding uh, many of the most powerful cleaning agents that are out there. Uh, those were used to clean blood before they were used to clean grease out of your oven. Right. Um, it's just it's the dirty underbelly that nobody wants to talk about to consumerism. Oh, my gosh. Let's just go somewhere super deep and dark for a second. <laughs> You've mentioned the use of energy weapons on your podcast. So because you're you have to be very careful what you can disclose and not disclose uh, that's you can check out Andrew's podcast for information on that. But the use of energy weapons is is used. Right. So tell us a little bit about that. And the reason I'm wanting to bring on the segue is because I think that a lot of like the biohacking tools, and I actually have a device right behind me that creates more of a coherent field in your home to mitigate things like Wi-Fi and 5G implications on us physiologically. So I'd love for you to share how can we build up our self-reliance, which is a key component in operations, and some of the tools that you may be aware of in the biohacking world and life extension that may have even originated in the use of uh, operations? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. Much like we were just talking about how technology and everyday consumer goods have a, they're born out of some sort of need, a military need, a, def a national defense need. The same thing is true about a lot of what you end up seeing in the medical world or what you see in the life extension world or the uh, um, 
the the energy weapon, the mass policing law enforcement world. There's a purpose. Imagine how useful it would be to have a non-lethal weapon that could immediately neutralize a threat without taking their life. Not only does that make you feel good like in a humane way, which is great. So for all you people out there who want to save the puppies and hug the trees, like, yes, it's very humane to not kill bad guys. But it's so importantly useful for espionage to keep bad guys alive because every bad guy is a potential source of intelligence. So instead of instead of unleashing a volley of bullets at a company of seven uh, seven infantry pe people during a conflict, if you could just direct an energy weapon that renders them all in uncontrollably violently vomiting with diarrhea or cramps, you just go and you pick them up, you stick them in a truck and you drive them away. And guess what? As soon as the energy weapons off of them, their body goes right back to normal and they are viable sources of intelligence with tons of vulnerabilities that you can exploit and none of the medical costs that come from capturing someone as a prisoner of war. You see the value there, right? One, one microwave tuned to the right frequency can neutralize an entire fighting force and you could extract from that all the intelligence you need to basically win that entire area of responsibility. It's powerful when you look at it through that lens, not just the humane lens, which is also nice. And you mentioned in one of your episodes how these energy devices can be used to target people. I've done a lot of research on you, clearly. I listened to all of your episodes. So, like, I really wanted this to be a super fun one. But you mentioned in one of your episodes that there is a type of energy weapon that can actually be targeted to a specific floor in a building to impact the occupants. But what about all the other people on the floor too? It's like, do we need to get these biohacking gadgets in our homes to protect us from all this stuff too? Yeah. So the, the interesting part about the science behind these energy weapons is they exist. They can be created. However, they're having, they haven't yet cracked the code on creating them at scale, which means creating an efficient, energy efficient, deployable version that can be used consistently. For like, just breaking it down very simply, if you put 10 bullets in a gun, you have 10 shots. If you take those 10 shots over the 10 minutes or 10 days, you have 10 shots, right? But a battery works very differently, right? And an energy weapon has to rely on a battery. So a battery might run out of charge quite quickly. The, the power The power of your flashlight is very different when it's using the last little bit of energy in that battery. Right. So that's part of the problem they have with energy weapons. The other part that they have is being able to control the direction of the beam or direction of the wavelength itself. So what we talked about in the podcast and what you're what you're recalling and what you read about a lot are some of the some of the questions that are out there about what's known as the Havana syndrome or whether it's Russia or China or some other some other bad guy basically using uh, directed microburst energy to make people sick, give them headaches cause long-term illness at uh, military and diplomatic institutions all over the world. If that's happening, what we're seeing is that they, potentially the weapon has been uh, fine-tuned to the place where it can target a specific floor, but more likely what's happening is that it's being planted inside the building because the building is under foreign control. So then it can be hardjacked into a permanent power source. There's no battery problem anymore if it's pulling from the direct power lines in the building itself. Uh, and we've seen all sorts of instances where, where uh, listening devices and cameras were pre-built into a diplomatic compound before the diplomatic compound was turned over 
to the foreign government that was supposed to live and work in that compound. So those are some of the challenges that exist. And those are looking for specific targets, diplomats, military, uh, high profile, um, wealthy people, and, uh, and people who are in business and commercial world. The everyday consumer has much less to worry about because they have much less reason to be targeted by an intel or a military uh, unit. But I still don't necessarily trust that all of the current technology has been tested to be syncretic with your physiological and your autoimmune systems. Yeah, totally. So when we're talking about being in an operation, there's this concept of if you get hurt, you have to be self-reliant. Like you can't just go to the hospital and be like, hey, what's up, guys? I'm a spy. I just got shot. Here's my bad. <laughs> the government insurance is going to pay for it. Can you help me out? Yeah. Yeah. So some of the things that I like to do that make myself super strong so that I can deal with nervous system uh, issues and pain and, and all of that is cold therapy. So when you're preparing as a spy to be able to deal with things like waterboarding, which is like a simulation of being drowned, yeah, you're on this like yeah. inclined plane and you're having water put in your mouth. What are some of the things that you and your wife do, or maybe even some of the things you teach your kids do to do to make them be as sort of like tough and resilient as possible and self-reliant? Yeah, no, that's another great question. So there's basically only two ways to go about improving your self-reliance. One is exposure therapy, right? Basically exposing yourself to the conditions that you think you might encounter. And the other is called threshold therapy. Threshold therapy is when you increase your threshold or your capacity for certain discomfort uh, in small ways, right? So for example, uh, I don't ever want my kids to experience what it's like to be kidnapped. I don't want them to have to be tackled from behind, black hood over their head, thrown in the back of a van and driven away. I also don't want to expose them through exposure therapy to a simulation of that where I'm the one doing it and I tackle them and I put a black bag over their head and I throw them in the family van and we drive away. So there are some places where exposure therapy doesn't work well and threshold therapy does. So that means little things like first you start with a conversation. Hey guys, have you ever thought about that there are bad people or tricky people out there that might want to take you away from us. How would it, how would you feel if a stranger picked you up and took you away? Let them explore those emotions for themselves. It happens just, it's just as viable with adults. I have a course where I teach urban escape and evasion. And one of the first things I do is I tell, I talk to my adult students and I ask them the same question. How would you feel if a stranger put their hands on you in a, a like an aggressive way and physically moved you to a different location out of your control. And then they proceeded to tie you up with tape or rope or put a mask over your head. Like you can visualize what that feels like. That's all threshold therapy. You're starting to get that experience. You're priming your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex with all of the experiences that you would get if you were to actually be kidnapped. Right away, you're improving your self-reliance and your resilience in that situation because 99% of people never actually visualize that process because they don't ask themselves the question. They watch it in a movie, which is completely different than self-reflection. Watching it in a movie, it's over in an instant, you know, and you're moving on to the, the, uh, the exciting chase scene, right? But it's completely different whenever you think it through. And then in my courses, I like to give people the chance to think it through and then they experience it. So now the experience isn't the first time that they've had that happen. It's, uh, it's similar to what causes post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD happens when your amygdala goes through a spike 
the spike short circuits, essentially how your amygdala works permanently. And now there's no way to walk it back, but you can prime someone's amygdala for the spike by increasing their threshold. So I've probably beaten that horse to death, Rachel. So that's all threshold uh, threshold training or, or threshold therapy. With exposure therapy, it's very similar to what you're talking about with cold therapy or, or your cold techniques. You literally put yourself into a, a difficult or arduous situation specifically so that your body mentally and physiologically can, can come to terms, can cope or understand kind of muscle memory wise what that feels like. Plunging yourself into 50 degree water feels a certain way. If you do that to your body multiple times, it starts to feel comfortable in that space. Not to mention the autoimmune and physiological response that that type of activity creates, whether it's a hot, whether it's hot yoga, hot tubs, even uh, even uh, systematic asphyxiation, like where you hold your breath for long periods of times, like free divers do. These all create physiological responses that make your body more resilient, either by decreasing its VO2 mat or decreasing its VO2 consumption, uh, increasing its response to uh, external uh, germs and bacteria through autoimmune, uh, responding with body temperature fluctuations at a faster rate than the average person. There's a lot of benefit to exposure therapy, to cold, heat, nights without sleep, uh, hours without, without drinking water or without food, or even uh, kind of forcing yourself in all meat or an all vegetable diet for a prolonged period of time to force your body to cleanse previous nutrients. So there's all sorts of benefits to that exposure therapy, uh, like what you like what you discussed. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of doing cold therapy just for that reason. And, and I was T-bone not too long ago, and I was actually really able to manage the PTSD from that and the nervous system freak out the pain hormones everything and i yeah. was just like wow i feel like everybody needs to have this ability to almost kind of uh rewire yourself so that when ish does hit the shin then <laughs> you know you can deal with it because being a human normal human not a <laughs> an operative <laughs> you know we have things like this that we need to be aware of so my it's, next a process, it's a it's a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's a processing question for those, yeah. you know, to, to boil it down to its real core. All you're doing is you're introducing a chance for your body to process something new. And if it can process it one time, it's only going to process it more and more efficiently and quickly in future iterations. So if you expose yourself to a stress an artificial stressor right now, when a real stressor presents itself later on, you've already got a process to, to go through that system and, and relieve or resolve that stress, just like you're saying. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable to actually experience that and be like, wow, I feel super badass now. Like I can handle <laughs> getting T-bone. <laughs> and I had like a five minute woe is me, but you know, snapped right out of it. But how powerful fast. is that even? Yeah. Like, people, yeah. people spend weeks reflecting on their own self-pity. You were over it in a few minutes and on to more productive things. It's super yeah. powerful. We could go on for hours. So I'll, The funny I'll thing is I do a lot of martial arts. I have for over 10 years, kickboxing, jujitsu. I actually put my hands up. <laughs> I can see the vehicle coming and I put my hands up to, you know, prepare. And I really want to talk about diversity in the spy world right now, because I think that these are really great tactics for, mm. you know, all genders to have in their toolkit 
to deal with stuff. So, so what are things like in, in the military spy world? Because when I was considering uh, going to med school, I actually filled out my whole reserves application and I was going to do that military route. But then I got really concerned about, you know, sexual harassment and mm -hmm. things like that. So what, what is it like, like the diversity? What do people look like in the operations world? So it's in, there's a, there's a short, there's an easy answer. And then there's kind of a, a sticky answer. The easy answer is that the diversity that exists on the covert side of operations in all countries is way more extensive than you might think. The movies make it look like you have to be strong, fit, gorgeous, and between the ages of like 27 and, and 38 to be a spy. In reality, that's not true at all. In reality, they need a much wider uh, range of options for an operative to look like in the field. Sometimes a female operative is going to be better suited for a mission than a male. Sometimes a heavy set male will be better suited than a fit male. Sometimes older will be better. Sometimes younger will be better. We even have roles at the agency that are better suited to people who have autism. People who are number focused without the distraction of emotions are fantastic analysts for core intel information. They don't get distracted by biases and by uh, political leanings. They don't submit to office garbage or all the office politics, right? They just stick to the facts and they come to powerful conclusions. If you, if you were to pay attention to mainstream media, you would think that every autistic person out there needs to sign up with some nonprofit and they basically have no hope for a, for a reasonable high paying, exciting, impactful future. When in fact, the exact opposite is true. They just need the agency and, and your intel agencies around the world have found that within their population, they can find extremely talented individuals in a specific niche that serve that intel need. And because of that, once you cross onto the other side of the curtain, you see incredible diversity from gender to sexuality to uh, upbringing, education, whether they're college grads or high school grads, uh, just just fantastic diversity that you see. That's like the easy answer. But the sticky answer is that the same diversity that you see with people, the diversity of people who become the leadership is very limited. For example, CIA in, in the US, every director is appointed by the president. That's not, there's no diversity there. There's no way that a super high performing intelligence operative could ever become director of CIA because they're not plugged in with politics. You have to be plugged in with politics to become the director. So what does that mean for the future of all decision-making and all like power at the agency? It's, it's going to be politically derived, not operationally derived. Interesting. All right, let me switch gears here towards picking your brain on something that I'm keenly interested in getting from you. How can we use spy tactics to avoid skin and rejuvenation gimmicks? And for example, like the issues we're seeing with news headlines and figuring out where you're getting your sources. And you have some great resources on your podcast talking about that. So if you're thinking, oh, how do I read news headlines? And you have so many tips on your Everyday Espionage podcast. I want you all to check out the show, seriously. But what spy tactics would you recommend we start to employ to uh, avoid getting lured into skin and rejuvenation gimmicks? So the, I, I love this question. We'll talk about skin and rejuvenation, and but we can apply this to really any kind of sales gimmick out there. The first thing that 
the thing that we that most consumers make the mistake of believing is that a sales pitch is informative. A sales pitch is not informative. It is emotional. That's that is how every salesman out there is trained to approach a sale. You have to trigger an emotion in order to drive a predictable response. That's human nature because human beings don't often move. They don't make a decision unless there's an emotional impetus behind that decision. So gimmicks are really good at using fear as the primary emotion to get you to take some kind of action. And that fear doesn't necessarily just mean like a fear for your own safety or a fear for your own health. It could mean a fear of missing an opportunity, something known as FOMO, fear of missing out, right? But they have to instigate some kind of fear trigger to get you to take action. One of the things, Rachel, that I know you learned on the podcast is that all people are motivated by four core motivations, right? Reward, ideology, coercion, and ego. Those four different motivations take different elements of time in order to discover them and to properly manipulate them. Fear, coercion, is one of the fastest, most easy to manipulate uh, uh, motivations that exists. Ideology takes a long time to kind of tap into someone's ideology and then really use it as a lever. You see it happen. That's how people end up in, in religious cults. But fear can happen just in a few seconds, a few words, right? And all of a sudden fear is triggered and gimmicks capitalize on that fear to sell you false promises because they know this is the dirty part of consumerism. They know that on the back end of the sale, when you buy the product, even if you're unhappy with it, you're going to blame yourself for buying a crappy product. You're not going to activate any of the refund or return policy. So of the of the 100% of people that buy a refund, only 15 or 20% are ever going to activate on the refund. The other 80% are unhappy with the product, but they still keep it. And that's still bottom line revenue generation for the gimmick company. Interesting. So say, for example, someone's on Google or by the way, stop using Google. I use DuckDuckGo for everything. It uh, shows you different things than the Google algorithm will show you. But say, for example, someone was looking up eye cream for lower eye bags. And I want you to use this example as like the confirmation bias mm. also when we're looking at news headlines and how when we search something, we're going to click on something that is already uh, kind of along the lines of what our values and confirmation biases are. So in your example, the person is searching for, uh, say, it, say it again for me, how to like, get, how to... Like a low, the best lower eye bag cream. Okay, so the best, the best lower eye bag cream, right? When you, when you search on a term like that, all of the people out there doing targeted marketing are looking for certain keywords to understand the person who's making the search, right? Lower bag, like cream for lower eye bags, that is not a search that many men will look up. It's so it's predominantly women. So right away, the marketer knows that if they target the term, uh, you know, lower eye bag, they're most likely going to be speaking to a female. They might be speaking to a male, but most likely going to speak to a female. A little bit of metadata on who your avatar is through something like Google is going to really fine tune exactly who you are. DuckDuckGo will obfuscate that more. So they have to go with, gen with generalities. When you compare that to a headline, Rachel, just take away lower eye bag and replace it with anything that has to do with 
fear with politics, religion, local news, etc. Right? Uh, are the liberals going to take away my guns? What's the best cream for lower eye bags? Are my guns going to be taken away? The same process applies here for for the newspapers and for news headlines. They already know who's looking that term up. Somebody who has a gun, somebody who's interested in guns, somebody who's afraid of losing their guns, they can extract all of this, what's known as psychographic information. They can extract all the psychographic information from the search term itself and use that to present to you information that is in line with your existing mental biases, right? Like you were talking about the confirmation bias, the in-group bias. They will present you first, if it's media, the news, they will present you with news stories, news outlets that already confirm your existing beliefs that you're going to lose your guns, already confirm your existing beliefs that the liberals are out to get you. That's what they're going to present you with because it's in the best interest of the advertiser and it's in the best interest of the media source for you to keep reading. It's called pulling somebody into your ecosystem. Once you're inside the ecosystem, they want to keep you in that ecosystem so they can sell you different things that are relevant to your ecosystem. It's all very business oriented, but it's also all based in historic espionage practices. It's the same way you recruit a foreign intelligence agent to spy against their country. That's the same way that you get a human being to spend money on something that isn't in their best interest. So that's kind of how you would see the, the lower eye bag uh, comparison cross pollinate into media headlines. Fascinating. And you just actually made a perfect segue into my next question. What's the history of media and marketing manipulation? I was listening to a brilliant interview with you and your wife, Jihee, who's also a CIA operative. And uh, talking about like the history, like in the 40s, there was this act passed that people couldn't be manipulated by the media. And then in the 80s, that was changed. Mm -hmm. And then we started to see the era of like Oprah and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and Jerry Springer. And then all of these advertisements that were then, you know, paid placements for products to be sold to us. So what's, what's your kind of take on the history of how we're being sold to you now as consumers? Yeah. So the, the, the reader's digest version of the history is that in the 1940s, Right as print media was really starting to boom, the government put in place a regulation that made it so that media had to be fair and unbiased. So if you were going to say something extremely right-leaning, the next article had to be something extremely left-leaning. Or you had to put some kind of blurb at the top that said, this is a politically left-leaning you know, argument, whatever it is. You had to prepare the consumer. The consumer had a protection in place that media could not tell them something without first explaining that there was an intention behind what they were saying. That lifted naturally in the 1980s, and that launched into what we now call opinion-based information. So a lot of what's happened from the 80s on is opinion. Let's, let's look at what happened in all of our lifetimes, the advent of social media. So we went from having opinion from a few authoritative opinion makers like Oprah and Jerry Springer, we went from a few to now every single person's opinion can be loaded into media, right? So there's this, this evolution of opinion-based information. And fake news and fake product and procedure claims. We call it fake, but all it really is, is opinion, 
right? It's somebody's opinion that isn't based in the same reality as our reality, right? So how woohoo is that? But yes, you're exactly right. When you took away the protection and the requirement for fair and uh, and equal representation, when you take away that requirement, it lends itself to people manipulating and taking advantage of our own internal cognitive biases. So just to re, just to bring back the term in-group bias, to bring back the term confirmation bias, if I am trying to sell a product, if I'm trying to sell a rejuvenating skin product, I'm going to look for people who congregate around topics that have to do with skin and rejuvenation. These are people who are going to feel old. They're people who are going to feel like they're aging. They might fear aging. They're going to be people who don't get a lot of rest. They might be people who, who watch their mom and dad age unattractively, un and now they're afraid of the same thing, right? Once you kind of isolate the group, you're able to then find and post whatever content, opinion or fact-based or fake, you can post that content in the same channel where that group resides, whether that channel is uh, during a commercial break on Jerry Springer or whether that channel is on a specific uh, podcast that's sponsored by NBC or whether that's on, uh, on a YouTube channel or on Instagram. You know that people who congregate there are looking for a certain solution to a problem they believe is relevant to them. You capitalize, marketers capitalize on that in-group bias that confirmation bias, and they they leverage that false belief into actual cash-based sales. And once it works once, Rachel, then the proof of concept is there. Why would they ever stop? They're using it to make money, and they're delivering a product that makes the consumer feel better momentarily. So it all kind of suggests that they're doing something that's eth ethically okay but it's only ethically okay because 80% of the unhappy consumers never take any action. This is a really interesting topic because now we also have AI being used in messaging, creating headlines. And in fact, I used one of these companies called Copy AI and just interviewed <laughs> someone who's actually working for the company. And AI is what all the companies are using to make their emails, to do their Facebook ad messages. So now we have this other layer of mm. another quote unquote third party coming in to manipulate us, which is just mind blowing. And, uh, you know, AI stuff, that's a whole other topic, but we're basically at choice points in humanity and we're at a specific uh, medical freedoms choice point right now. And then the next one is certainly going to be like Neuralink and the integration mm -hmm. of AI with humans. So that's another topic. But last question, since we have you on the show here, Andrew, what is our chain of command as citizens to uphold our constitutional rights and the implications of manipulation in media and marketing? And I will share that as a Canadian, as a registered nurse, I have had two appointments with my local MLA be canceled. I have been trying to book an appointment with my local chain of command to voice my concerns for my community as an RN. And I'm getting canceled. It's like yeah. our voices are not being heard. And it's it's really a shame. So what would be your recommendation for everybody tuning in if they're um, dissatisfied with the way things are going 
or ways that we can safeguard our um, our That's eyes and ears yeah. and protection in media and marketing? Yeah. So the the most important thing to remember, and it, I say this, and some people think it's elementary. I say it for a reason because there are many people who don't understand it. You are the commander in chief of every decision you choose to make. Every decision from what you click on on social media to who sits in a position of political authority over your local government. You have that power in the Western world. Other parts of the, the world don't have that ability. So we're not talking about them. They can figure this out on their own. But in every dem democratically elected Western country, you have the option to have a say in every step of that. So part of protecting your constitutional freedoms means exercising your constitutional rights. If you don't exercise them actively, consistently, then when you need them, it's not going to be, they're not going to be there for you. And that's, that's a challenge, right? Now, if you want to take more tactile, more, uh, more tactical action at a moment, right? Like what you're having right now, where your local representative won't even have a meeting with you, Right. The, the way that you can handle that, you can always write to whoever their competitor was. Right. During the last election cycle, there was somebody competing against them. That person was rep represent a party that was trying to usurp power from the previous person. So if your primary person is not taking you seriously, write to the person competing against them, because, yes, that person is going to listen to you. Not only is that person going to listen to you, that person is going to go knocking on the door of the current representative and be like, hey. I've got this le this letter from someone who said you canceled their meeting three times. They're not very happy. And this is just one constituent. How many more constituents do you think you're ignoring? And oh, by the way, I plan on using this. And a healthcare practitioner. Yeah, exactly. A healthcare practitioner in the middle of a pandemic. So that, I mean, for me, the, the thing to remember is that your voice can be used in many different ways. If your voice is being ignored, by one person, I promise you, there are two and three other people out there who will hear, who want to hear your voice and want to hear the story about how somebody else is ignoring you. Don't ever feel like your chain of command in government is there to help you. They're there to help the government. They're not there to help you. Your voice put them there. And that was basically where they said thank you. And then they were done listening to you until the next election cycle. And when that next election cycle comes, you vote in, in line with what they have done for you. We have a term in a lot of in business where people vote with their checkbook, they vote with their credit card. That's something you've got to remember that what you buy, you are, you are voting for that product every time you pay for it. So if you don't like the product, don't pay for it. If you don't like the product, get refunded. File the reimbursement, file the complaint if the product sucks. Do that because that's exactly how you cast a vote against products and people that don't help you and don't support you. So you can go to your local government. You can also go to the competition. You can go to the press. You can take it to your own social media channels. There's always going to be that in-group bias. Why not make it work for you? If you're unhappy about something your local representative is doing, I promise you there are dozens of other people on social media also unhappy with what that person is doing to them. So you can pile on to that narrative and let this whole world of social media and opinion-based media, let it work for you. It does enough work against you. Wow. I really needed to hear that. Thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one. And no, you're not. Weird in Canada right now. 
And this isn't the country my grandfather fought and stormed the beaches of Normandy for. So mm -hmm. by supporting me and hanging out on the show here, you know, sharing your insight, Andrew, it's just really my intention to help us all become smarter consumers in every aspect of our living, which is why I absolutely love what you're doing. So, Andrew, tell us how people can learn more about you, how they can work with you, your really cool uh, <laughs> spy training program that you have online. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So you, just like you said, just like you have up right now, uh, Rachel, you can find me at everydayspy.com. That's my primary homepage. All of my free content is there. There are all of the links to the podcast, all of my blog articles. You'll find access to my whole universe at everydayspy.com. If you prefer to tune in, if you're an auditory listener, auditory learner, uh, go to the Everyday Espionage podcast. It's on every platform. We're doing a really good job in uh, producing meaningful, powerful content. The reviews have been absolutely humbling in their positive feedback. So the Everyday Espionage podcast is a great way to find us. And I would encourage everyone to find my free spy game on my website, everydayespionage.com. You'll find a banner ad that just says, click here for a free game. That is a access point into a spy training simulation. The same kind of simulation that we go through at the agency to fine tune our understanding of human tradecraft, human intelligence tradecraft. We've, I've been able to kind of isolate and recreate that same sort of digital experience for everybody for, for free. So if you've ever wondered what it's like, if you ever want to test yourself or see what a day is like in an actual field operation, just go to everydayspy.com and you will find that link uh, to the spy game there and you can give yourself, uh, give yourself a challenge. Love it. Yeah. Honestly, your podcast is my favorite podcast right now. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode here with Andrew Bustamante from everydayspy.com. Be sure to give Andrew Bustamante some love and subscribe to his podcast. And I definitely want to have you back on the show, Andrew, let your wheels turn for some other intel you might have <laughs> on how we can be smarter consumers and navigate this world and all that cool stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. My pleasure, Rachel. It was great to be here. Thank you, ma'am. All right. And everybody, be sure to subscribe on the Rachel Varga Facebook page, YouTube channel, the podcast. Share this episode with a friend or family member that you think would gain some insight into all that we shared about. And, uh, you know, 25% of the audience on the show here are men. And I definitely work with a lot of male celebrities and you know, high powered CEOs that want to look great on camera as well. So book a one-on-one -on -one with me at rachelvarga.ca. Use promo code podcast15. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Have an awesome day, Andrew, with you and your beautiful family. Thank you, ma'am. Take care.